Hello, and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture GabFest. Our topic today is the digital humanities, and more particularly, a series of interviews, a package that the LA Review of Books is conducting on the subject. We spent some time with these stories, and I'll describe their structure a little bit, and then we can talk through what we got out of it. I think to the degree that we've discussed the digital humanities before, we've talked about pieces in the New York Times and create a chorus elsewhere on the internet suggesting that the kind of creeping influence of technology in the humanities is sort of selling out the value of close humanistic reading for false notions of uh, digitized, quantifiable, capital K, knowledge uh, when it comes to subjects like history, literature, and art. And the LA Review of Books has set out to kind of complicate that it's great, it's terrible dialectic, I'll use that word since we're in the academy, uh, by just interviewing a bunch of people who are at the top of the field, who are doing work that could be classified as digital humanities and asking them how they feel about these debates, their work, other work, uh, and and kind of what the incursions of coding, data analysis, technology, and how, whatever else you would define as the digital humanities is doing to the academy. Uh, I am curious. Let's start with Steve, since you're the person who, with whom I've discussed this previously on the Slate Culture Gap Fest. What appealed to you about this series of interviews, and what did you make of them? Um, well, uh, Julie, we should point out that it began with a polemic um, against the digital humanities, and the thrust of that was that um, this isn't just an, another innocent technique for, you know, attempting to make the humanities at least somewhat relevant to current concerns. It's actually of a piece with, you know, the neoliberal university and an entire kind of ide- ideological reworking of the of the of our notion of the university and what its mission should be um, uh, in the service of a supposedly neutral value, which is you know, objective or empirical research. Um, and, uh, anyway, I, I, it's interesting. I, I suspect that the story is even more complex than that. I mean, let me begin by saying that I'm enormously sympathetic to the idea that what digital humanitarians are doing is not really humanistic and is, uh, it strikes me as neither being humanistic nor science. And were they forced to do this work within the actual constraints of scientific peer review, I'm not sure how far they would get in even the softer of the social sciences um, in those departments. Um, But somehow there's a high level of credulity and also I should say institutional insecurity in English and history and other, you know, literature departments and on and on and on. People are desperate to have them made relevant again, and they're reaching out to anything that might do it. So hooking up someone to an MRI while they're reading Jane Austen or Jane Austen, or in the case of the digital humanities, more commonly of, of crunching uh, huge, um, you know, basically applying big data techniques to um, literature considered only as a data set is somehow going to rescue the humanistic study from its subjectivity, its relativism, and frankly, from its irrelevance. But, but Laura, to me, what, what I find interesting about this is how continuous the digital humanities is with all of the various theoretical paradigms that came before it, that essentially the 
general, the most general paradigm for studying literature is you have literature as a kind of object existing in the natural world or semi-social world or whatever. But anyway, as an object of study, and then you have a credential professional who's using a specific technique that they've mastered in order to understand it. This goes all the way back at least to new criticism starting in the 30s and 40s. And with every decade or so, a new technique is introduced in order to refresh this paradigm and make it relevant as the old one gets stale. So you moved your way through new criticism, Marxism, Freudianism, structuralism, post-structuralism, deconstruction, new historicism, post-colonialism, on and on and on and on. And and it's true that in some sense those were categorically different than the digital humanities in that they did not use empirical methods. They were all effectively hermeneutic. But in some ways, I think the continuity is more interesting, that 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 we still think of literature somehow as an object of formal study or uh, within a, you know, kind of credential system of learning. And therefore, you know, it needs to be approached via technique. And I wonder if that isn't the paradigm that's in trouble. And this is just the latest expression of, um, uh, of its institutional insecurity. Well, it seems like there's a couple of issues here. One is how valid is this as a way of offering us new insights on something like literature or history? And then the other is what is its role in the sort of hierarchy and economy of academia. And it feels like even with this, even more than with the various permutations of what we just used to call overall theory when I was in school, um, this seems to call attention to all of these needs or, or demands that are coming from outside of what we think of as a sort of bubble of, you know, someone studying a work of art. And that is, you know, what is the market value of the degree that you're going to get for studying this? What are the skills that you can acquire that will seem um, significant in the modern world or marketplace? And then how does the university and the people who work within it sort of justify their own profession and what they charge for it and whether the public as a whole should pay any part of it. And it feels like that – the idea that those are two separate issues has kind of collapsed more and more in the discussion of the digital humanities. But I mean one of the problems with it is that we don't really know what it is. Is it hooking someone up to an MRI when they read Jane Austen or is it counting all of the instances of a particular word or a motif in mm-hmm. all of 19th century literature. Um, you know, one thing that's really frustrating about this collection of interviews is that it's so professionalized, it's so inside baseball that yeah. that the language that the interview subjects use is sort of this weird combination of what we used to think of as academic jargon. It's not really that jargony, but also the language, especially with some of them, sounds exactly like what the sort of corporate managers yeah, use. Very similar. Yeah. And and there's this sort of 
vagueness about it that is incredibly frustrating because they're talking about something and it just feels so cloudy. You don't really know Mm -hmm. what types of research, what types of ideas they're discussing or asking people to care about. Uh, In the very first interview, which is with Franco Moretti, a a scholar at Stanford who's done interesting mapping work around literature and tracked other things in addition to writing more straightforward um, critical analyses based on his own close reading, uh, he calls the interviewer to account for saying, why are none of, why are all of your questions about what's going to happen next in the politics of this? Why aren't you asking what, if anything, this kind of work has accomplished? And she says, oh, you're totally right. I should ask that. And it continues to be the final question in the interviews that she does going forward. But for me, as someone who's followed this debate in the lay press, uh, you know, spoken to and is familiar with you know, my friends in academia, this this kind of my generation entering academia, you know, they don't see it as this like mortal struggle for the future of the academy. It's a tool set that they some of them use and some of them don't. You know, it's like a wrench. It's like they invented a, you know, you got your hammer and your screwdriver and your wrench and somebody invented like a plane. And now they got a plane, too, as like a thing with which to do the work. And some of them use it and some of them don't. And the, you know, the complicated politics of academics and who gets job based on who gets jobs based on what they do and how and what everybody else is doing. Like it's not like that goes away, but it's also not like the, my friends who've worked in digital, like all have fantastic jobs and the people who are holding out for the plight of the human reader are, are like, you know, wastrels by the roadside. You know, it's like a tool. It's just a tool. So all of the kind of overheated arguments, you know, pro con feel very removed from what I understand the actual like line level work to be uh, just from knowing people in the academy right now. And then the approach of reaching out to individual people who've published interesting work based on this kind of methodology seems so promising and fresh that when I started to read the interviews, I was very excited, like, oh, maybe I'll finally understand what the contributions of the digital humanities are. And instead, you get all of these people who have like a list of books stacked up behind their names, which I guess you're supposed to already be familiar with the work of maps, graphs, trees, and whatever the hell, and, Mm -hmm. you know, so-and-so's work on the kind of racial structures in the corpus of, you know. I'm not. I don't know already. It's not already in my head what they've done. And it would have been much more useful for a set of interviews that was a little bit more public facing to say, okay, like, what do you do? How do you do it? What have you Mm -hmm. learned? Why is that valuable? How is that interesting? And to kind of challenge them and say, like, does it really to like count the number of times the whale is described as white in Moby Dick? Like, Mm -hmm. and again, I'm I'm reverting to like the cliche, the stupid cliche of what digital humanities does, because these interviews, as far as I read them, do not give me a more granular and real sense of what this work has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's frustrating. It's like if I'm going to, you know, frankly, I would not have read all these interviews if I were not discussing them with you here today because they were agglazingly boring at a certain point if you aren't already enmeshed in the politics of this. Uh, but it also felt like a squandered opportunity to get all these people on the phone and not um, be like, okay, what have you done? Like, what did mm-hmm. you do? How did, what did you right. use this technology right. to do? And then tell us why you think it's valuable. And then, so why does that value? And, then, yep. and then you, the reader, can kind of come away with a sense of whether you agree. Right. Well, I, I would push back on this somewhat panacea notion about the um, what's going on in the humanities or academia. Um, Julia, I, I, if if money is being spent on the digital humanities, it's being redirected from elsewhere. And if someone's being hired to be a digital humanities professor, it's because they haven't hired someone who does something else. And I think that there's a lot of subjectivity. I mean, if, if academia is working out for someone that you know, they tend to describe it in somewhat exalted terms. And if it if it isn't, they 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 you know ridicule it. But I think that there's a less subjective way to measure, you know, what the health of 
literary study is at any given time. And the first is, how well does it reproduce itself as a profession, which is dependent first on minting new scholars, but second of all, attracting students into the classroom in order to justify the number of hires. Both of those numbers are are parlous, right? They've been declining steadily. Um, There are as is too many professors for too few students because people aren't interested in hearing what these super over-specialized scholars have to say about Shakespeare. They're actually interested in Shakespeare but get um, you know, a, a essentially turned away because that's not the principal issue of the scholarly apparatus at a, at a research university. And then the second is how much does the work being done within an academic department reverberate in the larger culture uh, uh, and how, you know, and that's a, that's a function of how necessary or vital it seems beyond the purely internal professional needs of the scholars. And I would say not at all. I mean, I can't name an English professor whose who's work has reverberate, reverberated with the wider culture since, say, Stephen Greenblatt, whose you know, most well-known work in academia was done 30 years ago, and his most well-known well trade work was done 15 or 20 years ago. They simply aren't... It, 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 you know, the Academy had a history of producing one or two or three really super prominent to a general educated audience, English professors a generation. So Lionel Trilling, for example, later Harold Bloom, these names would be, and later Greenblatt, these names would be well known to a fairly wide number of people. And they served as an invitation in an otherwise subliterate culture to take certain kinds of things seriously. They've disappeared. There isn't one. I can't name one under the age of 50. And the idea that somehow data crunching is going to be good either internally or externally for English departments to me is just preposterous. I don't think of it as a neutral thing at all. It's something that needs to be thought out probably in semi-polemical terms because if it isn't, it's just going to, it's just going to be the thing that people do. Um, and um, yet more people who are actually interested in literature as literature will be turned away. And it should be, it should be said, there's no other place for literature as a literature in this culture than the university, or scarcely, it's so slim as to be non-existent. And so the idea that we can just afford to sit back and say, eh, if they decide to do big data and MRIs, it'll be fine. So the sciences are the most overfunded pro- human project in the history uh, of life. I mean, there are places to hook people up to MRIs in the university as is. I think doing it in the English department is crazy. I mean, Steve, I'm struck here by the fact that I have a flip side set of arguments as you about theory. I mean, to me, the rise of theory already ruined the English department as someone who loves <laughs> it. did. As someone, I mean, it did. Uh, we agree on that. Well, no, no, no. Just let me, let me finish my thought. As someone who loves literature, I went to college expecting to become an English professor, encountered, you know, my, my teachers in my, you know, New England prep school were kind of crusty new critics who, you know, were all about close, empathetic, humanistic engagement with specific texts as a person. I showed up at college and it was all this like impenetrable jargon rich bullshit theory and i was like fuck this i'm going to the history department i don't i'm not interested in this and honestly the way i read about digital humanities it seems like it's reengaging with the text you know there's quantification but but once you to me it feels like it removes a scrim from the top mm-hmm. and i feel like when we've discussed similar issues in the past i've both acknowledged you know i think there's plenty to mock about the world of theory there's there's plenty to deride but i also wish i hadn't been so turned off by it because mm-hmm. many smart people I respect, including you and Dana, have engaged with the work of theorists who've uh, considered literature through the lens of theory and found it to be a valuable and productive advance in the way that uh, they understand the world and writing and what it means and what we should think about it. So I feel like you guys have pushed back at me on theory and said, don't throw it out with the bathwater. 
I you know, imagine. I can't imagine I ever did that. I think theory was a total disaster and it has been a total disaster. But my point is that it's a disaster because the the entire structure of thinking about how you approach the literary object is faulty to begin with. And this is continuous with that as theory was continuous with that. And until you blow that up completely and find some institutionally strong way to deal with literature, quote unquote, naively, you're neither going to make the enterprise relevant outside of the academy, nor are you going to make it enticing to the young Julia Turners who show up and actually want to read. Like, it'd be one thing if we all deep, you know, read deeply in English and American literature prior to showing up to Brown or Yale or, you know, SUNY Buffalo. Like, we don't. That's the, you know, we don't in this culture. That's the state of America in 2016. I wish it were otherwise. It's not. It, but, you know, then maybe you could do this second order, playful, interesting, you know, um, you know, theoretically based uh, thing to it. But, but it's, it's, it, 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 anyway. I don't know. I mean, to me, it feels like, this is the problem of modernism, like telling stories about humans is something we've done so long that eventually people kind of want to complicate what it means to tell a story and think about it on a meta level and then think about it on a power structure level and then think about it on an analytic level. And I just don't I, – I, I just think – and maybe I've had this fight with Dana and not you, but but let's, let's sub in Dana, like the, the pressure to think – Okay, there are many frustrations with and obviously mockable things about this trend, and yet, like many smart people are, you know, taking this as a tool that allows them to do interesting work, and probably many other misguided people are taking this as a tool to waste know, money but, and be morons. But it just feels reductive to me. It's I, Steve, I guess you, so, but wait, wait, let me say just say quickly. I the problem in putting it in those terms is it's somewhat subjective, right? It's like smart people are doing it. People thirty years ago were saying the same thing about deconstruction and on and on and on and on. There is an objective fact, which is that the study of the humanities as an enterprise on every, you know, on every measurable has fucking collapsed in the last 30 years. And people just don't want to, they don't want to get PhDs anymore. They don't want to get BAs in literature anymore. The, these numbers are, are you know, they're, they're just undeniable. So whatever was supposed to be accomplished by letting supposedly smart people do follow their own supposedly free conscience, intellectual conscience in the direction of theory has backfired massively. <laughs> it just seems to me that, 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 that there, that there are the imperatives of the faculty who need to be publishing work that is impressive in some way to get jobs. I mean, theory created this whole class of academic stars who, however unknown and impenetrable they were to people outside the university were a big deal in in the schools themselves, um, and then what a you know an undergraduate Julia Turner wants, which is to read books and understand them more deeply, and to be guided in that by an insightful teacher. But that type of approach to to literature, it's really hard to generate new and innovative publications out of that. And mm -hmm. that's what you need to succeed as a member yeah. of the faculty. And right. and that seems to me to be the issue more than, um, you know, what particular in the, in what particular innovation it is yeah, that you're complaining I about. But I, I also will say that when you talk about Greenblatt, who who won the National Book Award only a, a few years ago, so people are still reading him. He's actually become more of a historian. It, the fact that 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 was more historical that people that 
the the general reader could understand it as an approach to literature because history, like literature itself, is sort of narrative. Um, that's what a lot of people are doing with the digital humanities. I mean, Franco Moretti's book is really, really readable and really mm-hmm. fun and insightful. And and when he he's not just counting up the use of certain words in in particular novels, he's created a system by which you can get a sense of the whole shape of literary production in a particular historical period, which actually no human being could do because no human being could read all of those books. Mm-hmm. And so you, there are things that you can learn from that that you can't get from just one person reading one book and then writing about it. And that seems valuable to me. I think that that's fair enough, but it's important to remember what the mission of the humanities was starting in the 1940s when it was became well-funded um and uh and 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 far more well attended by undergraduates which was here we were this country that overnight had become the default empire of the world because the british empire had collapsed under the weight of two world wars how and in what way were we going to receive that mantle and we did it in one way in the art world when the art world capital of the art world moved from paris to new york and we did it in another way when essentially you know the, the the literary inheritance of the English language transferred in some respects from England to America, and we decided to try to make humanistic study a universal template for an educated human being, and it presumed that people didn't have that as a natural inheritance in this country. If you if the university didn't do it, if it didn't happen in a formal setting, it wasn't going to happen at all. And I take the first three to four possibly five decades of that enterprise as a resounding success and a democratic success and encouraged people to read books that they other wouldn't otherwise read. Now, if we withdraw that because of the conflict between the research university, which is to produce scholarship, original scholarship, and the liberal arts, which is to elevate and educate young people, if we sacrifice the second mission to the first, then what are you doing? You're essentially making literature a semi-class inheritance, right? And maybe that won't track perfectly, you know, who's a son or a daughter of a hedge fund manager, but it will track who's the son or daughter of Stephen Metcalf, who pushes it on their kids at home. As someone who grew up in a home with no literary books, Going to a university and finding them there and and seeing that they were taken seriously in and of themselves and not as specimens was utterly life-changing to me. So maybe I've come at this way too subjectively, but but it seems to me turning it into a junk science is, is not the way to rescue the enterprise. Well, I don't know. I mean, I can appreciate what you're talking about, Steve, but it also it feels to me like the more critical distinction to draw is not between the way the humanities department should evolve, but in the difference between research and teaching. Like fundamentally the the process of coaxing an insight producing close read of literature out of a group of students is a teacherly act and not a knowledge producing act it's like an insight producing act it's an awakening well, act sure. uh and and the the university is at odds with that fundamentally no matter what the tools are that the researchers are using well I we think. agree we agree to disagree i don't think that that's true but uh, you know anyway uh, all right. To be continued, no doubt, at some point. Uh, thank you so much, Sat Plus members, for supporting Slate and for listening to this bonus segment of our show. We will talk to you next week.